I'ma tell you, man. Just tell him. See, I've been watching you for a while, checking out the smiling style. Wanna know if I can be with you for the night. Is that alright? Is that alright? God, the Black Lily was an amalgamation of hundreds of people kind of walking the same path, believing the same thing. You know, from its inception, it was truly a collective thing. You know, the creators of the Black Lily accepted me because I wasn't trying to be like nobody else. I wasn't trying to sound like nobody else. I was trying to do what I do and introduce it to a whole new audience and have it be accepted. And successfully and humbly, I am so grateful that that happened. You know, they accepted me as a Lily. And I, you know, I'm forever grateful. I'm forever grateful. You know, I learned a lot during that period. It, it, it helps me to do what I do today. It was just love. Um, I would try to get there early because it was a standing venue. And at that time, I was wearing heels. And I would wear me some heels. I would have my little outfits together. And that meant I won't be standing all night in these heels. So I need to come early so I can sit down. There are probably five, ten seats in the whole spot near the stage. So you had to get there early to get one of them. Um, but it was awesome. Like, I... I don't remember too many nights where I was like, okay, I don't know about the talent up here today. So, you, for example, you go to a Roots concert and you see the Jazzy Fat Nasties, and then you go to listen to the Jazzy Fat Nasties at Black Lily, um, or even things like um, the October Gallery, which was a sort of spoken word event, and you could see Jill Scott and Ursula Rucker, both of whom had appeared on uh, some of the Roots albums. And, you know, I think really that's sort of the hallmark of that time. There was just all this interconnectivity between the artists in the city. And it was really perpetuated somewhat by, you know, OKPlayer.com, which was sort of the root site. You know, you had these chat rooms and discussion boards where you could interact with other fans. And it just really brought us all together. And I think even more importantly, as the roots became really this... Um, well-respected, well-regarded group, you know, they brought other people into the city, so you got to see people like Most Deaf or D'Angelo who were, you know, blowing up on the scene as well. So really, it was just, at that period of time, a really, really great time to be in the city and, you know, um, just a great time for black music in general. As you say, that fat magic in a bottle, it, you can't replicate that. You can only try to simulate it, you know what I'm saying, in your own right and in your own, you know, path of energy and everything, but it'll never be anything like the Lily again. Ever! Ever! You understand me? Because it, it was more than just one or two or three or five people to make that happen. You know, and it just so happens that everybody 
um, stages in life and in artist development happen to coincide at the same time. Twenty-one years ago, at the turn of the century, Philadelphia found itself at the center of a movement and a sonic revolution, a return of sorts to a sound that centered live instrumentation and analog recording processes inspiring many to dub this time as the rebirth of soul music, music steeped in black music traditions, the blues, gospel, funk, jazz, and now hip hop. And in February of 2000, Philadelphia's place in this movement took center stage as the Roots took home the Grammy for best rap performance by a duo or group with their single, You Got Me, which featured Erica Badu from their fourth studio album, Things Fall Apart. And the Grammy goes to, well, in theory, the Grammy goes to You Got Me by the Roots, fearing Erica Badu. Hey, peace, peace. Uh, this, this right here, this is the power of God, you know what I'm saying? And uh, one love is deeply appreciated. Yo, yo, we taking this back to Philly right here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Keep praying for us, pray for hip-hop. We're trying to bring some live instrumentation and musicianship back into contemporary black music. Thank you for your support. That moment at the Grammy seemed to embody so much joy and happiness. The way the band jumped to embrace each other after hearing their name called, looking somewhere between overwhelmed, shocked, and relieved. For the group that had built their reputation as an underground blue-collar band, one could say their first Grammy win was a moment of arrival. They'd spent the better part of a decade relentlessly touring, hosting jam sessions, and recording new material. But for fans of The Roots, their win and the recognition they were receiving didn't come as a surprise. They were an immensely talented group and fans knew that. Everyone else was just catching up. Black Thought was one of the dopest MCs in hip-hop, a gifted storyteller with an endless array of flows. Questlove was one of the dopest drummers, and a bridge between Clyde Stubblefield, the funky drummer, and the drum machines used to sample the funky drummer. He could play with such surgical precision that many producers often thought the Roots were using a drum machine. And in the landscape of 90s hip hop, the Roots cut against the grain of an industry often filled with shiny suits and driven by crass materialism. They were representative of hip hop's true North Star. And we can't forget, they were a hip hop band instrumentalists, at a time when the genre was mostly comprised of DJs and MCs. But with the success of Things Fall Apart, the rest of the world began to take notice, not just to the roots, but to Philadelphia, and a sound rooted in the spirit of the city's rich musical lineage. Separate from the roots, the year 2000 also saw the emergence of Philadelphia natives Jill Scott and Music Soul Child who released their debut albums, albums that have withstood the test of time. And all the while, artists like Bilal, Jaguar Wright, Floetry, Vivian Green, and Kindred the Family Soul were working on their debut albums to be released in the soon coming years. 
And at the center of this movement in Philadelphia was a performance space, Black Lily, a weekly jam session and open mic designed to highlight women in music at the Five Spot, a music venue located in downtown Philadelphia. Black Lily was started by the Jazzy Fat Nasties, an R&B duo made up of Tracy Moore and Mercedes Martinez, along with Quest Love of The Roots. It was a space committed to artists at all levels, watering the seeds and giving them a space to fail and succeed. It was a training ground and where they came to cut their teeth. Like a 13-year-old Jasmine Sullivan, who technically wasn't even old enough to be there, but everyone knew without a doubt she was special from the first time they saw her perform. Or Jaguar Wright, who could, on a dime, go from scatting to full-throated singing and could rock any crowd. Or artists like Jill Scott and Ursula Rucker, who combined poetry and spoken word, performed to the backbeat of hip-hop. But Black Lily wasn't just for Philadelphians. It drew artists from all over, like Anthony Hamilton, a then relatively unknown background singer for D'Angelo, or Floetry, who'd heard about the burgeoning movement and made their way to Philly from London, as well as artists like Erica Badu or Most Deaf and countless others. On any given Tuesday night, anyone could walk through the doors of the Five Spot. It was a must-see, must-attend event, as touring artists would routinely make sure their stop in Philly landed on a Tuesday night so they too could grace the Black Lily stage after their show. If Philadelphia was at the middle of the rebirth of soul music in the early 2000s, Black Lily was the epicenter. It was the spiritual anchor for the movement, artists helping artists, thinking both collectively and beyond themselves. Black Lily and the artists that helped make it possible left an indelible mark on the city in music, something that can be seen, heard, and felt to this day. In hindsight, that time felt like catching magic in a bottle. But what made that era so special? And what made Philadelphia such a hotbed for talent in that moment? I'm your host, Stanley Collins, and this is The Seeds of Black Lily, an audio documentary exploring Philadelphia and black music at the turn of the century. To understand Philadelphia's prominence in the early 2000s, it's necessary to understand the longer tradition that artists like The Roots, Jill Scott, Jasmine Sullivan, and countless others were following in, as well as the role of Philadelphia in the larger musical landscape of American music. To help contextualize this era, I spoke with Dr. Claudrina Harold. She's a professor, filmmaker, and chair of the history department at the University of Virginia. Earlier this year, she published her book, When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music in the Soul and Hip-Hop Eras, a book that takes a close look into how gospel music evolved during the post-civil rights era and how place informs sound. And over the past decade or so, she's also taught a course called Motown of Hip-Hop, which traces the evolution of black music, taking into account the contributions of black musicians and offering social and political commentary the emergence of regional sounds, and much more. 
Luckily for us, she also attended Temple University in the mid-90s, so she was in the city when this movement was forming. Here's Dr. Harold. Without Philadelphia, the shape, sounds, and directions of American pop music and American sacred music would be radically different. There are so many amazing musicians who had roots in Philadelphia or spent time in Philadelphia, um, from the Dixie Hummingbirds to Patti LaBelle to John Coltrane. But when I think about Philadelphia and the Black music tradition, I immediately think of Gamble and Huff. Uh, Gamble and Huff um, shaped my childhood sonic landscape in ways too many to name. I could always get a sense of the mood of the house and the state of my, my folks' relationship by what was playing. And so when I heard Teddy Pendergrass or the OJs or Lou Rawls, um, I, I knew something important was happening. The music of Gamble and Huff, the music of Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff is so incredibly important. Um, it had universal appeal, but we all know that love for Philadelphia International ran especially deep in the African-American community and stacked on the stereo consoles of many Black households were albums by the OJs, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, uh, Teddy Pendergrass, uh, and Lou Rawls, among others. Um, and I think there were numerous factors that accounted for uh, Philadelphia International success. They had social commentary, so you had songs like Wake Up Everybody, Give the People What They Want, Bad Luck, um, but they also had these songs that took us into the everyday spaces of Black life, where women, men, and children loved, prayed, fought, reconciled, and moved on. And um, they provided in many ways, I think, uh, the music of Gamble and Huff provided a window into the interiority of Black life. And when you also think about the music that came out of Philadelphia International, and let's say between 1971 and 1980, there was R&B, there was classic soul, there was champagne soul, and there was also disco and funk. And so I think that sonic range would have an impact on the next generation. Gamble and Huff created music which not only moved bodies, but also inspired souls. Um, in their music, there was this unwavering love for humanity. And so I think there was a universalism in the music, as well as a unflagging, um, unwavering commitment, I should say, to confront the world and all of its brutal realities. Uh, so their music talked about racism. They talked about crass materialism. They talked about the environment. They talked about militarism and war. They were a part of a monumental moment in African-American music where you had musicians speaking truth to power. So they were engaged in a movement of sonic radicalism that included people like Gil Scott Heron and Stevie Wonder and you know Nina Simone and Aretha Franklin. 
they demonstrated an ability to achieve massive popularity and success and at the same time not lose their soul. And so they were indeed the voice of the people. They were uh, the producers who declared, got to give the people what they want. They were the producers who confronted, once again, crass materialism with songs like, um, you know, For the Love of Money. But one of the things that, one of the albums that I think is so powerful is their 1973 album, Ship Ahoy. Um, of course, the OJ Ship Ahoy. And when you think about the politics of the album, when you think about the timing of the album in 1972, and 1972 was a monumental year for Philadelphia International. Uh, the success of Billy Paul, the success of, um, you know, Lou Rawls, the success of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, and really the success of the OJs. In 1972, of course, the OJs released Backstabbers and moved the world with the single Love Train. You know, let's get aboard the Love Train. And um, then to come back with Ship Ahoy. And of course, that title track takes us through the history of the slave trade. It provides a sonic entry point into what we in Africana studies calls the Mayafa. And um, it's so powerful. You know, you can hear the crack of the whip. You can hear the opening of the door. You can hear the water, you know. And so we can begin to situate ourselves in the um, experiences of those 12 to 10 to 12 million people who um, made that horrific voyage from Africa to the Americas. For me, Ship Ahoy is almost like a sonic precursor to the sounds of Blackness from Africa to America, the evolution of the drum. Gamble and Huff provided us with an example of how to present history in musical form. And that is just uh, one of the most powerful records and recordings of all time. And when you think about their willingness to make such a grand statement after this crossover success. So, you know, Love Train is upbeat. It's, you know, let's all get on board. There's like this spirit of interracialism and togetherness, and it has this cosmopolitan feel. It is almost the sound of a post kind of civil rights victory lap and then you get ship ahoy and it's like wait a minute you know and so i situate ship ahoy within a larger context of a almost a neo-slave narrative that we begin to see in the 1970s where people are writing about slavery the experience of slavery but also within the context of something like roots and alex haley that album is a part of that moment. And then just the visuals, um, that album, the, the, the album cover and the, the image, the portrait of a, of a slave ship is just really, 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 really powerful. Um, really, really powerful.
days. And I just think in, in some ways, the OJs were like their most important kind of, you know, their mouthpiece. They covered the entire spectrum from love to community building to politics. And what they forced us to do was to look at Black life in its totality. And that was um, extremely powerful in that moment. And to look at Black life in its totality and then to wrap it around like the sweetest sounds of, you know, these orchestrated, you know, the strings and all of those things. And so um, the thing about them too, and when you talk about um, the OJs and, and Gamble and Huff, you know, these were also classic albums. And so when I think about Backstabbers, when I think about um, Chip Ahoy, I think about albums that um, are spectacular from beginning to end. And sometimes the OJs are not always included in conversations about great album artists of the 1970s, but the body of work was amazing. So yeah, I think Philadelphia International contributes immensely to the vibrancy of that moment. When I think about 1972, 1972 was just a, such an amazing year in, in Black music history. I mean, I'm pretty sure in 1972, people are still vibing from Marvin Gaye's 1971 album, There's a Riot, um, What's Going On? And of course, Sly Stone comes out with There's a Riot Going On in 1971, I think in December of 1971. But 1972 is just this classic year in terms of um, in terms of albums, you know, the ba uh, Backstabbers by the OJs, Aretha Franklin's, um, Young, Gifted, and Black, and Amazing Grace comes out in, in 1972. Um, you know, Trouble Man is 1972. Do Donny Hathaway's live album is 1972. I mean, I can really just go on and on and on. So it's just this, it's, you know, the early 19s, the 1970s are just this, um, the 1970s is a decade in which so many people are at the top of their game. From Aretha Franklin to Funkadelic and Parliament to um, Al Green. I mean, once again, 1972. Al Green, I'm still in love with you. I think why I think why Philadelphia International is so important because I also think they are a part of uh, a group of um, why Kenny Gamble and, and Leon Huff are so important is that they also a part of a group of black musicians who are deepening the sound of black music and taking soul, the sound of soul to another level. They were not always critics darlings when they did that. So there were some people who still wanted that kind of kind of gruff stats sound. Um, but they demonstrated the many, the multidimensionality of blackness. They did they they demonstrated the multidimensionality of sonic blackness. Yeah. And so they were um yeah, Philadelphia International was extremely important. I can still remember um, <laughs> when I visited Philadelphia for the first time, doing a recruitment trip to Temple. One of the first places that I wanted to go was I wanted to see Sigma Studios. I wanted to see the area where um, magic was made.
Leading up to the turn of the century, Philadelphia was also in the middle of an ongoing social and cultural transformation, much of which was fueled from the ground up by community organizers, religious leaders, and artists, as well as intellectuals at some of Philadelphia's universities. Dr. Harold was a student at Temple in the mid-90s, so I asked her about her experience being in the city and on campus at the time. It was a city where you could hear spoken word from Sonia Sanchez in the afternoon and maybe catch a root show at night. The impact of Afrocentricity as not just a intellectual movement, but a cultural phenomenon was um, very powerful in Philadelphia at the time. And the Black Power Movement was still visible in Philadelphia. There was still in North Philly a functioning branch of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. And so all of that energy um, just shaped the moment. Intellectually for me, it was transformative to be at Temple University, the first school to offer a PhD in African-American studies. Was exhilarating, was exciting. And at the same time, there were so many important things going on intellectually in other parts of the city. So when I was in Philly in you know, 1994, 1995, 1996, I think Houston Baker and Farrah Jasmine Griffin were still at Penn. It was just music was in the air, but also this sense of um, people individually and collectively trying to change the world was very much a part of that landscape. When I lived in Philadelphia in the mid-1990s, I had the sense that everything was possible. Philadelphia has such a rich um, tradition of culture, Black cultural production, but also um, political activism. And it was, in my opinion, the perfect spot, this perfect space for the birth of a unique movement. The movement that Dr. Harold is referring to is what some have called the Neo-Soul Movement, a shorthand name used to describe the period in the mid to late 90s when artists like The Roots, Jill Scott, D'Angelo, Michelle and Deggio Cello, and others began melding the influence of 60s and 70s soul music with hip-hop, creating a sonic landscape for themselves that would extend the tradition of Black music. But the movement was more than just sonic contributions. Much like their predecessors in Gamble and Huff, these artists explored the totality of Black life. They offered social and political commentary, the everyday experiences, and imagined worlds yet to be realized. They were, in their own way, chartering a new landscape. In the next episode. So neo-soul becomes a way of qualifying, hey, here's this music that sounds like the classic stuff that you used to like. And as you rightly note, 
um, most of the people who are being labeled R&B literally hate the term. And, you know, I think it's not that surprising that they would hate this term because, let's be frank, very few artists like to be compartmentalized. Very few artists, you know, want to see themselves as any one thing. They want to be free to explore um, sonically. And so, you know, painting them into a corner with a label, um, unfortunately, limits their ability to do such. This has been The Seeds of Black Lily, an audio documentary exploring Philadelphia and Black music at the turn of the century. To learn more about this episode, you can visit 808sandjazzbreaks.com. This podcast was written, produced, and edited by me, Stanley Collins. This episode was engineered by Jimmy Goodman of Leopard Studio. Original music by Soul Surplus. And funding for this project was made possible by the Black Music City Grant and Rec Philly. Thanks to Dr. Claudrina Harold for her expertise and willingness to share. And thanks to Mike D. and Daryl DeBrest for granting access to their video archive. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.